You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Never limit where running could take you. And I don't mean in just running itself, where the sport can take you. That was Bart Yasso. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative, movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I hope today's episode cheers you up, inspires you, and motivates you to keep on moving. I don't know about you, but I'm over here eating as many immune-boosting foods as I can. Oranges, spinach, red peppers, and other citrus fruits and dark leafy greens. I can't emphasize enough that it is so important to keep moving, even if you're indoors. Keep your lungs and heart pumping and blood flowing, but that's another podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to thank Money on the Move podcast sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD. Their CBD balm is game-changing. I am so excited to share my conversation with today's very inspiring guest, running icon, Bart Yasso, as in Yasso 800s as in do it 10 times and you might figure out your actual marathon finishing time. Bart was Runner's World Chief Run Officer for over 30 years, where he developed their race sponsorship program, creating the opportunity for Runner's World to work with over 7,000 races around the world, representing 4 million runners per year. Thanks to his hard work, dedication, and contribution, to the sport of running. He is in the Running USA Hall of Fame and RRCA Distance Hall of Fame. Bart is also the author of two books, My Life on the Run, which is a memoir, and Run Everything, which he pretty much has. His race roster is beyond impressive from running, cycling, and triathlon, starting with Badwater. As many of you know, it's a 146-mile ultra run. He has also completed marathons on all seven continents, including the Mount Kilimanjaro and Antarctica marathons, and he won the 1987 U.S. National Biathlon Long Course Championship, and in 1998, at 43, he won the Smoky Mountain Marathon. He has completed five Ironman races and cycled unsupported across the country, not once, but twice. As you can imagine, Bart has lots of great tips and advice, mantras, and a great mindset and outlook, which he shares in the episode. We talk about where his adventure with running began, his career, and his journey cycling across America. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple. It's easy. Scroll through your app, click on the five stars, and tell us what you enjoy about the podcast. Also, feel free to take a screenshot and share the episodes you love in your Instagram or with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. Now, on to the episode. And before we get started, a quick word about our sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD. Today's episode is fueled by Mad Ritual CBD. Mad Ritual CBD has changed my recovery game in a really big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high-quality, CBD-infused products. Their CBD balm is off the charts amazing. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100-plus five-star reviews. The balms have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD-infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So, if you are sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. 
Founded by women athletes and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website, madritual.com, and use the code Marnie on the Move. Now, on to the episode. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. How are you doing in this world health crisis and pandemic? But we'll see what happens. It's pretty, uh, it's it's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, I know. New York City right. is... Oh, see, big cities is different. It, it's pretty mellow here. I mean, it's kind of fun. Like, there's less traffic and it's really quiet. No one's moving around. So it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So I, I see people out walking that I've never seen walk down my road. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and, you know, I see probably 10 to 12 people every day walk down my road and you know, I know their neighbors and who they are, and now all of a sudden there's total strangers walking. It's really good. I mean, and they're out there walking, like really trying to get exercise. It's cool to see. That's great. Yeah, as long as they're and, social and I think distancing. It's just they're, yeah. And, yeah, they're well. They're in there. Well, I think they're, you know, live together. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they're just they just want to get out and you know working from home or whatever. So it's in, interesting to see these these changes. Yeah. I was in a serious curfew in Nairobi, Kenya, in the mid-90s, where they said it went from 6.30 at night till 6 in the morning. Nobody, I mean nobody on the streets, you will get shot. And if you live after you got shot, then they'll ask you what you were doing out there. Oh, my and gosh. That's, that, that's what they said on TV. When was that? In the mid-90s. And I remember I was in a looking out my hotel, you know, we'd get back from dinner by like 5.30, quarter, six to be way ahead of the curfew. And then uh, look out of my room at like 6.30 and there was not one person out on the street, not one. And then you'd see the military car, like a Jeep come by with a guy on the back with a machine gun type thing. And, and then police would come through and, and then nobody, I mean, not one person. And Nairobi's, you know, two million people. Right. What was happening at the time? Was there was it... a political uprising. They, they, Mao became the new president. There were some people that didn't like him. And they kind of, every night they would, you know, protest and burn cars and things like that. And they said, okay, we're going to, we'll put a stop to this. And were, you there with, were you there with Runner's World? Uh, yeah, I was doing the... Kilimanjaro Marathon, and I did another race in Kenya. I can't even remember the name of that race. So it was, I was able to do everything because, you know, we were doing stuff during the day. Well, not that much of an inconvenience because you just stayed in a hotel. And But it was amazing that, I mean, everyone, everyone obeyed this curfew. Living in New York City, it's really scary to think you're going to be stuck inside your apartment. And even if you have a great yeah. apartment, you know, you still, you don't have a two acre backyard. To go no, around <laughs> no, but you know, any, you. but everywhere in the world, I mean, this is not right. just in New York city. It's yeah, where yeah. you live. It's, you know, my parents in Florida, it's friends sure. in Dubai. It's, there's a lot of stress around it. And as long as I can run, like as long as I can go outside and go for a run, I'm okay being stuck in my apartment. I love my apartment, yeah. so I love you where I've worked from home. Yeah. yeah, so excited to catch up with you and talk. And I, I know I had reached out before all these things started going on. I mean, there was yeah. little, there was talk about like coronavirus, yeah. but it wasn't where it was. And I thought it would be really fun and inspiring for some of my listeners who are athletes to kind of hear from you, especially now. I mean, as someone who's sure. been in the world of running and such a huge contributor to the world of running for the past 30 plus years. I mean, we should yeah. jump into things. Marnie on the move. I'm you were at Runner's World for so long. and 31 you know, years. Hard to believe. 31 years goes by pretty quickly, believe it or not. I know. I Maybe. feel like sometimes I've had my own business now for 20 I just stop at 20, 20 years. I just, yeah. I feel like I should just start lying about how long I've been in business <laughs> because then I'll just That's be younger. <laughs> but when I do my Yazo 800s, it shows how old I am. <laughs> there you go. I love it. Running love tells it. you who you are. Yeah, you got it. Where did your adventure with running begin? 
Yeah, so my adventure with running, I mean, I started in 77, 78, like late 1977, the fall of 1977, got a little more serious in the spring of 78. And, you know, I just wanted to get in shape and I used running just as a way to get some exercise and get in shape. I was never overweight. I was always a, a skinny guy, but it wasn't about weight. It was just I wanted a life change and lead a healthier life. And so I started running never never ever thinking that I would do races or run marathons or things like that. I was just out there running and I just enjoyed the movement of it, go out in the morning and run. I thought two miles was a long way to run. Yeah. And in the seventies, I mean, that was like when the running boom started the first running boom. Yeah. That's what happened. I got Jim Fix's book, the complete book of running in like 78. And I was like, wow, there's people who are really serious running marathons. And I was like, so I got a little more serious about, you know, two miles a day leads to five miles a day and running two times a week leads to running five times a week. You know how it goes. And then, uh, and then I didn't, I didn't do a race, uh, for, for almost two years. And then my brother challenged me to a 10 K race, just a local little, you know, out, outside of Bethlehem little township race is 10 K. And I thought my brother was a bigger guy, foot, you know, played football and rugby. And I thought, there's no way he can run with me. That's what's he, what's he challenging me for? So we did this race and he beat me in this 10 K. I could not believe it. He passed me in the last mile and I had no clue what I was doing. I went out so fast and you know, I was like, Oh, this sport's easy. I can run with these guys in the lead of this race. I'm right up front here. This is perfect. And then got to like mile three of this 10K and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Those guys kept going and I was in a world of hurt. But uh, yeah, you, you, know, you went out too fast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I went out way too fast. I was all adrenaline. And then my brother caught me in that last half mile and beat me. But but that was the only race he ever beat me. And I got serious after that. Yeah, well, sometimes followed. that's what it takes. <laughs> Yeah, but it was really, you know, he was the one that, uh, my brother George was the one, he really believed I could be a good runner, I didn't believe him, I didn't believe in myself, and he was the one that kind of gave me that little nudge, yeah. and uh, changed my life forever, I always say, I always tell people, you know, they think, you know, like you're just born like this to run, I go, no, no, I went out for a run in the late 70s, and kids, and tube socks, and cut off jeans with a belt and a Budweiser t-shirt. You know, I right. didn't know what I was doing. That's, <laughs> you know, everyone, you yeah. got to start somewhere. Right. And then, you know, if somebody would have greeted me when I came back to my apartment and say, hey, dude, you're going to run all over the world. You're going to work at Runner's World Magazine. I would have told the person they're completely out of their mind. Like, I just, you know, I thought running one mile was a long way to run. But, you know, as you know, Marnie, things, things change. You get into the sport and then, I mean, that's how it starts, though, you know? I mean, like, you know, I wasn't always a runner. I mean, I always ran. I would do, like, three miles a couple times a week or, you know, that sounds like nothing to me now, right, in perspective, now that I'm, you know, just did my first marathon last year. You know, it just it's just one foot in front of the other, and the next thing you know, you're, like, signing up for a marathon. I mean, it might not be Uh, as fast as I just said it, but it's true. Yeah. I, I can remember plain as day, and this was, like, in the 70s before I even did a race and I was out running like you know I was up to like six or seven miles and I saw this guy with a shirt that said Boston Marathon and I said to this guy like you ran the Boston Marathon and he said yeah I ran like three times I was like I thought this guy was God I mean literally (laughs) I was like dude that's unbelievable and you know I just had no idea I had no idea what was around the corner for me but I was so in awe of this guy, and that kind of, you know, just sticks in the back of your mind when you do your first race, and then you go, okay, I got to run a marathon, and of course I got to qualify for the Boston Marathon, all that kind of stuff. It just, uh, it's amazing how it snowballs. But back in the '70s, it was, it, you know, there weren't a lot of women in the sport. Uh, there weren't groups of runners. You know, running stores didn't offer group runs. Running clubs didn't even offer group runs. It was really a you know, you're kind of out there on your own kind of sport. Uh, but boy, did it change. I read this amazing book by Matthew Futterman, who I interviewed him for the podcast, but it was all about Bob Larson. Yeah. And I know that you're mentioned in the book a couple of times. 
But yeah, I mean, I, that's how I know so much about the 70s running culture and like what happened and how things yeah. kind of went. And there was no money in the sport until then. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. They called it loneliness of the long distance runner. That was the tagline everybody used when they met someone who, who did it. <laughs> it was a marathoner. And I do remember like 80, 81 doing 23 mile long runs. And man, if you saw another runner, you were like, whoa, there's another run around here. And then you, when you saw this runner, if they had like a $9.99 Casio watch that had a chrono on it that you could be timing yourself, you're like, and this runner's serious because they got that $10 watch on because that was the only technology we had. That's and so funny. That was really like, that showed you that this person was serious. They're out there timing their run and they had the Casio watch we all wore and they were $9.99 in these days. It was uh, different times, but but actually, you know, really fun times, to be quite honest. It just was uh, because I, I really got like a backseat to watch the sport grow. And it was pretty cool to be there, you know, when it wasn't such a big sport and it was more only a competitive sport to watch the influx of women take over in the sport and just conquer the sport and uh you know, women's marathon tri trials and, of course, the women's marathon in the Olympics and just seeing, just witnessing all that was just the coolest thing to see that. I know, you know we've come a long that. way. I mean, there were just yes. over almost 500, was it 500 women that competed in the U.S. Olympic trials oh God, in Atlanta? Trials were, yeah, it was crazy. Were you there really... or you, did you go down no, there? No, I watch? was not there. No, it felt weird not to be at the trials because that was, I always used to go, but, uh, I really didn't have any work function to do there. So I was uh, I was at another race that weekend. I was at the uh, Little Rock Marathon. Oh, yeah. I, I do a lot of race announcing, and I've done their race announcing for many years. So Speaking of work, you've traveled around the world writing about races yes. as the chief run officer at Runner's World, which, by yeah, the way, what a gig. yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, it sounds like such an awesome dream job. It was the greatest gig in running, let me tell you. And I, somehow... I got that gig. I don't know how, but it worked out. Well, what were you doing before? Yeah, so I was never really, I wanted to be, you know, I was trying to be a pro triathlete or make a living off of running and running races. And, you know, the money just wasn't there. I was actually right. pretty good in triathlons. I used to win a lot of triathlons. But What was your best you sport? Win. I, was, I was much better at cycling than running. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed running more just because I enjoyed the people more. Right. And I enjoyed the challenge of racing more. I, I, you know, running is really, it's all about you. It's not this team sport. And uh, so, you know, I just enjoyed running more. So I kind of got away from the triathlons and that's when, when I got my job at runner's world, I said, okay, I got to get serious about a job and make a living and just stuff. You know, I'm not going to make a living running I wasn't fast enough and there wasn't a lot of money and the same thing with the triathlon world so I got that you know I just remember getting the job at runner's world and I just said okay I just gotta work as hard as I can and outwork everybody here and kind of you know work my way up the ladder and you know I originally was hired to work with events and I worked with a ton of events like we had almost 7,000 races in this program that I had which was really fun to do and that's how I got to meet so many people in the running industry right tell me a little and bit then, about the program what was the program yeah, that you so were we working used to, on yeah we used to give bib numbers and you know we would sponsor races and then in return they would promote the magazine so it okay was a, was a nice uh you know what i would call a partnership and right. uh you know when i when i got there there were you know maybe 300 400 races that they were working with and after i was there a couple of years we got it up to seven thousand. wow and, and you know the sport was taken off the magazine was taken off it was just you know again it's watching the sport grow is same thing with working at runner's world to watch our magazine grow up to be part of that was just such a fun thing to do and yeah. i just i just loved it and then and you were there for 30 years my job yeah yeah 31 years <laughs> 31 years world. yeah Nice. And then my, you know, just my job morphed into different things. And then I got uh, the title of chief running officer, which I had for, I think, about seven or eight years. Uh, the last seven or eight years I was there. And, you know, I was just this liaison. Uh, I would 
bring a lot of stories into the magazine and our website mm -hmm. that I would find at events. I was always out there meeting the runners and finding out their stories and getting them back into the office and see if they could turn in the feature stories or something that would just be on the web. There's so many inspiring people in the sport. It just was, uh, was really cool to to be in that, that position. I just loved it. Everyone has a story how they get to the start line, right? Yeah, that's my my quote that I use for Erase Everything is, uh, when the gun goes off, we all follow the same path to the finish line, but each of us has taken a unique path to the starting line. Yeah. When I first kind of wrote that down and had that, I kind of used that as my little thing at work, my little uh, come in in the morning and my own little quote that I would start my day off with. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I was sort of thinking, like, when we get to that first race, that's the starting line. Right. Uh, but, but then I realized there's so many ups and downs in your life. Like, you get away from running and stuff happens, whether it's a loss of a loved one or a divorce or whatever it is, and then kind of get back into running. For me, it was really uh, when I contracted Lyme disease and got really sick and couldn't run. And then when I got back, I was, man, I was hungry to run. I was like, dang, I missed that. And that's when I won that Smoky Mountain Marathon at age 43. I didn't think I was going to win any marathon at age 43. But I was, you know, when you take something away from someone and then they get the chance to get it back. I was pretty hungry. It's very timely for what's happening now. I mean, in terms of appreciating everything that you have and right. having it taken away and maybe coming back to it with a new perspective and also recreating a perspective while you're not able to do what you love to right. do or what you want to do. Yeah, when you take some, something away from someone that they really enjoy, when they get it back, you better watch out because yeah. they're going to... They're going to take it to another level. So I, for me, that's really what it was. So that quote, it wasn't like that first race I did. It was, it can, you know, we each, I took a unique path to get back to that starting line on Smoky Mountain Marathon. I had overcome a lot of stuff. I was really in, in a bad way physically. You had Lyme disease. So how did you yeah, overcome, like, overcome that or sort of persevere? Well, I don't know if you ever overcome it. Right. I, I got I contracted it four different times. I got really beat up with it in 1990. And then I got it really bad again in 96. And that's when I really got uh, at Bell's palsy and a lot of paralysis on the right side of my body. So I was really laid up for quite a while. Yeah, I was messed up for quite a while. I mean, it was you know, it got to be, you know, you're happy to walk across the room kind of right. thing and then yeah. start to walk a little bit and then dream about going out for a run, but eventually got out for a run and then, uh, you know, get back into doing it again. And it was just, uh, I remember I was the three hour pacer at the Chicago marathon when we had the runner's world pace team. This was like in October and I was really sick in July where I could barely walk. And I remember Amby Burfoot, our editor, and of course, winner of the Boston Marathon, he kept saying, don't take a slower pace group. Don't do this three-hour group. And I said, no, no, I always lead the three-hour group. And he goes, but you haven't been running. I go, dude, don't, don't take this away from me. This is what I want to do. And uh, he, he was, he introduced me at this uh, seminar we had the day before the race. And he said, he couldn't even walk three months ago. And now this guy's going to lead you around the course under three hours. And, People were looking at me like, uh, we don't know if he can do it, but I, I knew I could do it. I, you know, I could I would run a lot faster than that, but I was, but I was back. I knew I felt, I had the feeling that I could do it and I did it pretty easy, but it was, uh, I, Amby was not, it's just the way he said it. He was trying to give me props, but pe people got fear out of it because they said, you know, they thought I was going to get out there two miles in the race and not be able to walk, but it was, uh exact opposite. What did you do to continue running while you were treating your Lyme disease? Yeah, a lot of treatments and a lot of adjustments, the way you train and the way you live. And, you know, the first time I just got on antibiotics and a couple months later, I was able to run and got back, you know, almost to normal. But then when I contracted the second time and had all this neurological problems, that took a lot longer uh, to to fight back and then when I got it the third time I was really in bad shape I had to do six months of two intravenous strips a day and wow. through a pick line and uh you know after six months of two drips a day I came back to life 
it was really fun and I got you know really started running well again did a bunch couple ultras and stuff and then but then I got sick again and I've never been the same since 2002 yeah back in the hospital and uh man I came out of that I remember laying on that table and talking to the doctor before they were going to release me and I said uh I just had that feeling I'm never going to be the same and he said you got the right feeling he said you're never going to be the same you went through a lot of trauma and uh you're gonna you're gonna notice it when you try to get back out there and he was right I was uh I mean I went from running really well to barely being able to run did the Lyme disease take hold of your heart lungs and joints 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 uh, long heart you know i had accelerated heart problem yeah it was a little bit of everything and i just was never the same and uh you know but are you still running oh yeah i still get out there yeah i get spurts where i can do like you know like 25 days of running and you know i run three or four miles a day and occasionally i'll get like a seven mile running but that's that's a big deal when that happens and then Sometimes I got to take three weeks off because my joints are just so swollen. It just comes and goes. Do you do anything? Know. Like, are there any foods that you eat that help you? Or I've always, like you're, yeah. I've been a vegetarian for many years, and I think my vegetarian diet helps me out tremendously. Yeah. I eat vegan about 95% of the time, but sometimes travel, being vegan is hard. And I used to travel a lot. I mean, I traveled tons and i've traveled all over the world so it was it was hard to be vegan yeah and travel like that but but i always follow a vegetarian diet at least for the last 32 years that's amazing so yeah so i need to I, get I on that program that it, yeah i believe that vegetarian diet helped me out tremendously on uh, what keep keeps me going what do you think is like of the vegetarian diet as a runner who's doing endurance when you were doing more endurance racing i mean like speaking of endurance <laughs> yeah. you completed bad water which is 146 yeah. mile ultra back in the old days running race. yeah 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 you know i always people always when they find out you're vegetarian they say where do I, what do you do for protein i'm like I don't, I don't know i don't i just eat a good i just try to eat well i don't think about protein and i never i never was I never had a protein problem. And when I was healthy, when, you know, when I didn't have problems from Lyme disease, I had tons of energy. I was like, I never drank a cup of coffee. I thought people who drank coffee were crazy because I got up and I was ready to run 10 miles the minute I got out of bed and hop on my bike and, you know, ride 25 miles just for kicks. You know, I had tons of energy. I don't have that anymore. I, I get up and have a cup of coffee every day. <laughs> I've got to be honest, but I never understood coffee in the old days. Oh, really? Because you just got yeah, up and went for I, a run. Yeah, yeah. I never, I, I didn't, you know, I, I had friends that said, oh, I can't run yet. I didn't have a cup of coffee. And I, I always used to make fun of them. Yeah. And now I'm one of those people. I feel like uh, I have a 30-minute window in the morning. Like if I get up and I want to go for a run, I have to go. Otherwise, if I have coffee, then I'm hungry. Like, you know, and then the run happens like three hours later because I have to think about like I eat oatmeal right before, which is I'm working on my nutrition right now with training for races. And, you know, triathlon is very different. You've completed five Ironman triathlons, which I want to ask you about. But triathlon is so different than running. So I I had to figure out my diet for like longer runs, like an hour and a half. I use gels, but I don't really need to eat a lot of food. But like when I'm going out for a super long run. It doesn't work, so. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, the the triathlon stuff that you know you do have to eat if you're gonna put in you know a four hour day of training. I yeah. Mean, there's no way around it. Yeah. I always felt I was lucky because I never really was hungry in the morning, and uh, so I I was pretty lucky. I could get out there and get on my bike and do 50, 60 miles and not even think about eating. And I know most people aren't like that, but yeah. I really had it when I rode across the United States. I did two solo bike rides across the United States by myself. And, uh, you know, I would get up and no coffee, no nothing, just get out of, you know, leave the hotel, going to be on my bike by 7 a.m. And I would ride from 7 a.m. to noon. You know, I had a little bit of water on my bike, but I had no food, nothing. I was fine. And what then, kind of uh, bike were you riding? I would say, I had, I was lucky. I had a titanium bike 
Uh, it's not as nice as the bike I have today, the bike we had in the early 90s, but it was a decent bike. Yeah. But it's really weird to have packs on your bike and you're trying to ride at a decent pace and you got, you know, I had to carry supplies and clothing and things, things like that. So I had two packs on the back of my bike. And, uh, but I'll tell you, out of all the things I've done athletically, you know, I've raced all over the world and run crazy distances and all kinds of races by far the most fun I have that athletically, nothing compares to it riding across the United States. Wow. Bicycle. That's huge. It is the coolest experience. I mean, it just, you really understand the physical makeup of our country when you go along at 15 miles an hour and see what our country's made of all these little towns and meet all these different people. It's really amazing experience. When I did it the first time, uh, I finished and you know, the next, so I finished on a Sunday and back then I would commute my bike to work. I was riding 25 miles in the morning, 25 at night back, to, back home. And, uh, so I finished on a Sunday and then, they had this bet at work. I didn't know about it, but they all bet that uh, I wouldn't ride my bike into work that Monday morning because I just rode 3,100 miles in 20 days. So they thought, oh, oh my God, God, he's not going to go anywhere near his bike. We're going to make fun of him because he's going to show up in a car. And I come in on my bike and everybody's <laughs> looking at me like, you rode your bike today? Like I said, why wouldn't I ride my bike today? What are you talking about? And I said, well, you just rode 3,100 miles in 20 days. And I said, I looked right at him and I said, I would go back out and do it again tomorrow if I could. And you did it twice. I got to get to work. But I did. I waited two years and then I did it again. I did a little faster the second time. And it was, I did a similar route, except I tweaked it. You know, if I, there was a road that was a little further north or a little further south, if I, you know, I could, okay, I went on the northern road last trip. I'll go on the southern road this trip. So. They were, you know, it was basically Seattle and New York City both times. Right. Uh, but I was able to use different roads. Uh, so it was. Did you, are like you like naturally good at mapping out courses for travel? You know, I had, a, I had a little bit of help, but I am, uh, in the old days when we had maps before we actually right. used the phone Those old and things. All the devices <laughs> we used, I was, I was fascinated by maps. I would always look at maps and I always was fascinated and just the, Geography of the United States always fascinated me. So being out there, you know, crossing these mountain ranges, leaving the, you know, the coastal range, you know, outside of Seattle, and then you hit the Bitterroots and, oh, my God, the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming and, of course, the Rockies. That's uh, so The Black cool. Hills of South Dakota. You just go over all these ranges and then hit the plains. and It's just the coolest experience. And you really understand the physical makeup of the country. And when I say that to people, they always look at me like, what do you mean? And I said, well, like you leave Wyoming and enter South Dakota. And when you're in Wyoming, everyone's a cowboy. Everyone has cowboy boots. They got spurs on their boots. Like they're, they're really a cowboy. They're not like a, like some dude in Dallas that right. you know, was a banker and wears a cowboy hat. I mean, they're really cowboys. Right. And then you, all of a sudden you see a sign that says, welcome to South Dakota. You don't cross a river there's no mountain separating. There's nothing there. You just all of a sudden walk in South Dakota and everyone is Native American. It's like, how did this happen? Like cowboys are on this side of the line and then Native Americans are on that side of the line. It amazes me. And, uh, and, just when you, and then when you do cross rivers uh, to get to different states, how different it is. And you're like, all I did was cross a river how can people be that different but they really are and you really get to know it when you when you uh, stop and talk to the people and uh, I remember this little town outside of Spokane Washington <laughs> I'll give you a, a story so I come into this little gas station just to get like a Gatorade and a snack to hold me over and uh, so I get a couple Gatorades and a snack and I just said to this kid hey what's it like here in Davenport Oh, I hate this place. This is the most boring town in the world. He goes, it's cold here in the winter. It's hot here in the summer. I hate this place. And I was like, well, I think you can move if you want to. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't see a chain around your ankle or something like that. And I just, uh, and I thought, wow, that guy really hates this town he lives in. So there I am two years later, I'm coming down the road and I recognize the gas station. And I was like, 
well, I don't need Gatorade, but I got to go in anyway because I got to see if this guy's still here. Right. So I walked in and there he was. And, you know, of course, he has no clue who I He had so no I recollection. Like, yeah, yeah. So I get like a Gatorade and I go, oh, my God, this town of Davenport is the prettiest place I've ever been. And this guy starts yelling at me. He goes, this place is a hellhole. What are you talking about? That's so was, funny. Oh, my God, I was laughing so hard. That is and really then funny. I, then I told him the story. I said, dude, I was here two years ago. You told me you hated this place. You're still here. That's <laughs> and then so he funny. looked at me like he looked at me like I was completely crazy. But it but it just that was things like that just always made me laugh. I remember uh going over the, the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming and climbing up to ten thousand feet. It was cool and I had to put some layers on you know probably went down to like 40 degrees but then you descend on the other side and get down and it's warm and sunny so I and you didn't have any sherpa stuff. with you nothing like you had no, no car no, you know, i had i had my i had my wallet yeah were you staying at hotels or were you camping i did i stayed in hotels i had all the hotels paid in advance so i always had that carrot to get to that hotel but i remember i so i come screaming down this hill and now you're at the back down around 4,000 feet and the sun down. It's a lot warmer than it was on top of the mountain. So I pull over and start shedding the layer I had on, stuff it in my bike. And I see these kids in this little park and they're smoking joints and they're looking at me and they go, hey, mister, what are you doing? I said, I'm riding my bike across the United States. He goes, dude, they have airplanes these days. You don't have to do that. <laughs> I'm like, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, I know they have airplanes. I'm well aware. <laughs> but they, they thought I was stupid. That's hysterical. Yeah. It's they amazing, no, though, what people, people have no, no concept. That, yeah. Yeah. They had no idea the journey of it or the significance of it. They just thought I was dumb or didn't have money to get an airplane ticket. You have such an impressive race roster from like running, cycling, triathlon. I mean, you've also done marathons on all seven continents. Oh, yeah. You know, you mentioned Kilimanjaro before. You've also done Antarctica and you won the 1998 smoky mountain marathon and also just i just want to say because i know you're not going to say this 1987 u.s national biathlon long course championship so of yeah, all these the coolest that yeah. was the coolest race i've ever won no doubt about it. okay oh. the which one the u.s national the, biathlon uh, yeah because it was a long race and you know i wasn't projected to win it but i knew i was pretty fit at the time and i i People in the race didn't know how fast I could move a bike because that's where I took control. I was able to run kind of with the guys in the lead. I was close, but I got on that bike and I hammered that bike. And I never forget I had a – so the last uh, six miles out, it was a three-mile out and three-mile back. And I'm heading out to the turnaround, and I'm running as hard as I could. And I know I got a – I knew I had a decent lead when I got on the bike because I had a really good ride. And – then I hear these footsteps, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm running as hard as I can, and someone's catching me. I kept hearing these footsteps, and I'm like, I just kept picking up the pace and picking up the pace, and then get to the cone and turn around, and now they're just three miles back to the finish line, and there was nobody there. Those oh footsteps were in my head. Oh, but it was like you awesome heard yourself running? I've heard I, that's happened I, to me before. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if they were my own footsteps or what I was hearing, yeah. but I thought somebody was catching me. So I really just like killed myself because I thought there's no way I'm going to lose this race. I ran so hard. And then when I went around the cone and realized there's nobody there. And I started running and I realized I had like a three minute lead. And I thought, okay, there's no one can catch me. And was that before you did the bike across America? Uh, Yeah, that was before. I'm in 1987. I did the bike rides in 1992 and 1994. Oh, cool. You know, I always think I always would like to do it again, like with modern technology mm-hmm. to actually follow a GPS or to have maps or to get to your hotel and send messages out or to have a cell phone, all the stuff today. And, We're documented and I, on Instagram. But I realize the stuff, the technology today has made things dangerous. Like I never, ever felt danger out there. Never. I mean, I always felt the exact opposite. I always had people... I must have looked really bad when I was out there because people always offered me food and money. And I think when you're out there riding all day in the sun and you get beat up and I was losing weight every day, I was yeah. pretty skinny. Yeah. They were like, man, we got to feed this person. <laughs> and because they really would say, you know, I, they would go past me and pull over and they go, 
hey, you look like you're going cross country when they see those packs on your back. Yeah, and they, yeah. You know, you're using these frontage roads. And I said, yeah, I'm right cross country. And they said, hey, I live in this town. If you need a place to stay. And I'm like, no, I already have my hotel. That's the other side of our country that's like really nice, right? Like people, some people have no concept, like they see you out there, they have no clue. And then some people like want you to come stay at their house and they're so nice. And you would never think in a million years, like something would be weird (laughs) unless you're like now today, right? Yeah. And I always had a fascination with the Badlands and the Native American people. I always read a lot of Native American books. And when I got to the Badlands, I thought, man, I'm actually here. I've read so much about this place. And, you know, I saw Native Americans nonstop as I was going through. And then I get into the real heart of the Badlands and there's, you see nobody. Right. But I, but it was really eerie because it was, uh, it looked like it was going to rain and the rain was just ahead of me. So I was like moving at the same pace as the storm, but I was never in the rain. And I always see these rainbows and I was like, oh my God, this place is mysterious. So like I was, it was so cool to go, go through the Badlands. And then I stopped at uh, this one reservation and there was an older couple sitting out on the porch and they were classic Native American look. I mean, they looked just like if you opened up, put a Native American on the cover of a book, they had that look. Yeah. And they were pretty, I thought they were really old, but they weren't as old. They looked, they were not as old as they looked. Right. pretty weathered from the sun and they're sitting out there rocking talking we're sitting on rocking chairs talking and i start talking to them about riding across the country and they thought i was crazy but they liked it and then uh i thought really i thought they were like 75 years old turns out they were like 60. wow and uh they just had such a weathered look on their face from the sun and then they they said oh come on back and i go around they walk me around the back of the house and uh the one parents were there. I think it was his parents. Yeah. And like he said, yeah, I'll introduce you to my parents. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's like 75 years old. How can you introduce me to his parents? And, and his parents were in the back and they were like 80 something, high 80s wow. probably. And they just sat back there really, you know, just looking out over the reservation. And I thought, wow, these people, I mean, it gave me the chills to think, uh, I mean, they lived their whole day. They lived their whole life there. They never, ever, ever left the reservation. I mean, uh, that's something that I love about running and cycling and doing triathlon is just exploring and adventuring and discovering new places and meeting people from all over the world. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you realize that a lot of people do not go anywhere in their life. Right. Like the the average American visits eight states in their lifetime. So the average person is not very adventurous. And when you go, when you do these bike rides, you understand that because people, you know, I've been like, I was only in Wyoming and, you know, people, I always used to just say I started in Seattle and I'm finishing in New York City. I started a little northwest of Seattle and I finished in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Right. But I never said Asbury Park or the little town I started in. Yeah. So I, you know, I just say Seattle, New York City, thinking everyone's going to know of Seattle and New York City. I met people that never heard of Seattle. Or New York City. Like, well, oh. they, I never met anyone that never heard of New York okay. City, but I was amazed at people. Seattle, I never heard of it. I'm like, it's a, probably 800 miles from here. How can, what do you mean you never heard of Seattle? It's interesting. Just, yeah. yeah. Thank God, everyone I... When I said New York City, I think everyone got that. I never had anyone say, where's New York City? But I was amazed that, uh, you know, and it's in these areas, these small towns, and people just don't go anywhere. Was that, like, one of your big takeaways from doing your cross-country ride was, like, from a cultural standpoint, like, just understanding people and seeing how different people live around the country? Yeah, how happy people are in this country. I mean, there are a a lot of people that, you know, I, I, go, I wouldn't like to live in their situation, but they love living in their situation. They love where they live, uh, you know, the pride that they had of their area that they live in. That's pretty cool to, to experience. And what about you being all alone out there cycling? Yeah, people always just ask me, like, didn't you get bored out there? Or I say, you got to be kidding me. I Maybe it's just me. I just have a natural curiosity of the lay of the land and the people and the town. So I was, 
I never, I, there was not one second I was bored. Did you bring a camera? Like, did you take pictures when you were? No, I did bring a camera, but I, again, if I had a cell phone today to take pictures, it would be so easy to do. But right. I did have an Instamatic camera. I took some pictures the first day and I said, I'm not taking any more pictures. I was really just intent on taking it all in. And I never thought that people would have interest in it, but, uh, I do get invited to speak at some cycling clubs and they ask me about, you know, about the trip. People are fascinated when you do it solo. I would be fascinated solo or group or anything, honestly. I mean, it's impressive. You know, it's funny. There was a group of about 50 cyclists that did it. They started about two weeks before I did. And they had, I saw their markings, like big signs you would say, you know, would say the ride and big arrow lunch over here and stuff like that. And I thought, oh my God, they had catered lunches and everything. I used to have to stop and hit, hit little grocery stores and things like that to get by. It's just different. But I really felt like I had to do everything. I was in charge of all my meals, all, you know, everything. You had no, I had no one to worry about but myself. But you also have no one to rely on but yourself. So it really makes you a little self-sufficient, which I really liked. My my other favorite story about riding cross country was on the, I think it was the fifth day. Yeah, the fifth day, Cody, Wyoming. And I pull in and I met another guy who was riding cross country. And I was so excited to meet someone. Right. And we started talking and we're talking different, the roads and the towns we went through. And I'm realizing this guy's going the same roads I'm going, the same towns I'm going through. And, you know, I said to the guy, yeah, I left on Monday. And he said, I left on Monday. And I'm like, how often we seen each other? Like, do you go later in the day or what's going on here? And he said, no, I go, you know, I'm usually on my bike right at sunrise. And I said, that's what I do. I wait till it's light out and I'm ready to ride. And then, so it turns out he left the Monday before I left. So I was on day five and he was on day 12. And, uh, but he left a week earlier and he didn't think it was possible to cover as much ground as I covered in five days because he was killing himself and got there in 12 days. So how many miles were you doing a day? Do like 155 a day. When okay. I did the second time, I was doing like 170 a day. When he said, you know, we left on Monday, you know, and I, he said I did the same, he was thinking, you know, that I was on day 12. And I said, I just left this past Monday. This is my fifth day. And he's like, he got this look on his face, like a scared look. And I go, what's the matter? And he said, no, no, I left Monday a week ago, Monday, like, the, you know, he said, I'm on day 12. He goes, you were the same thing I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm killing myself to get here in 12 days. You got here in five days. And I just said, well, you're winning. You're out here longer. You're seeing more than I am. But I said, I, you know, I got, I got this eight, 18, 20 day window. I got to get it in in that time frame. So he, he was, he didn't want to talk to me after that. <laughs> He thought I was crazy. So when you were like <laughs> riding through these towns, were you like, I want to come back and run here? Or were you like also discovering oh, places to do races? Marnie, and you, yeah, You have no clue. Like there are so many places I was. I would say like, oh my God, if I could ditch this bike and do a 10 mile run out here to the north or wherever I yeah. was. There were so many places that I had that feeling. But you don't have time to get off your bike and, and do a run. <laughs> I cannot imagine. I did the course in reverse in a car. And then I did do a lot of the runs I always wanted to do. So I always thought, you know, I, I think it was 2002. I thought, God, I would really like to see all those places I rode. And, you know, I just I, I just wasn't thinking to do it on do it on my bike again. And uh, so I said, you know, what? I want to drive cross country just for the heck of it. So I followed the roads I was on. I did use the highway occasionally just to make up some time. But I did go to a couple of those places that I really wanted to do runs, and I did some runs. So it was really cool to do it that way. That's so cool. They're so different. It's much easier to, you know, when you do it in the car. You can stop and eat, and you can eat while you're cruising along. Oh, my God. But it is. But I have to say, it is fun to do it on a bike. I, I, I will go to my grave saying it was the most fun athletic thing I've ever done. Because it is, it is hard to go that or, I mean, that to do it in 20 days and second time, 18 days with packs on your bike by yourself, it's uh, you're out there. It's not easy. I cannot even imagine, but I don't think you don't sound like somebody who does things that are easy. So, <laughs> oh, I do these days. So, would you go back now? Now, I go 
you know, I'll ride 12, 15 miles and think, oh my God, that was a long ride. And then I get back and I think, oh my God, that was, <laughs> times have changed because that wasn't a long ride. Right. But, you know, I mellowed out. It's all cool. Were there any, you mellowed out, it's all cool. I mean, you know, you've been, you've got a lot of, do you, this is a crazy question. Do you know how many miles you've run in your no, life? I don't. No, I don't. I know, uh, I mean, I did keep serious training logs in the old days. And then I switched over to keeping an electronic log and I did that for a while, but then I ended up crashed in a computer and I don't know what happened to it. And then, and then I just stopped keeping logs. It did, I just you know, didn't, didn't care, didn't want to know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I just, by going off the logs that I have and what I've done, I would think it's gotta be, you know, in the range of 120,000 miles, I would think. And I have That's no a lot clue of sneakers. how many, okay. yeah, I have no clue how many miles I've done on the bike, but it would be a tremendous amount. Cause I, when I trained for that bike ride, I was, you know, on the Saturday, you know, during the week, I'd run like 25 miles of work, 25 miles home. And then Saturday, I'd go out for, you know, 130-mile bike ride. And then Sunday, go out for 150-mile bike ride, just in training for the thing. And that was just routine. Right. And, oh, God, now, like I say, if I do 12 or 15 miles, I'm like, oh, that was a nice ride. Speaking of training, a lot of my listeners know you from your famous Yasso 800s, which, where did this come from? They don't work for everyone, I can tell you that, but they work for a lot of people. But it really was just this keeping track of mileage and doing 10 times 800, which just happened to be my favorite workout. I don't know why, but, you know, I'd also do five times a mile and ladder, different interval workouts. But I just always loved that 10 times 800, 400 recovery. Run three miles of warm up, do a bunch of strides, 10 times 800, do some more strides and do a three mile cool down. And, uh, when I would do that workout, I would write down the average, what I would average the 800s in. And then, you know, I was training for a marathon. I really had this correlation, what I could do 10, 800 meters in was the time I could do in the marathon. Of course, the 800 meters are in minutes and seconds. Marathon, obviously, in hours and minutes. Right. But that correlation was there. And when I told Ambie this, he thought it was the greatest thing. Ambie Burfoot said, and he named him after me because he said, man, you got an unusual name, Yasso. And uh, eventually he said when Yahoo became famous and Google became famous, he said, I told you, Yasso is just like Google and Yahoo. <laughs> he, said, he said, we didn't even know those names back then. But he said, I knew you had an unusual name that people would remember. And this Yasso 800 workout would stick. And I thought it was crazy. But it did stick and people do them all the time. When did you officially coin the name Yasso 800s to your famous workout? And we did story in runner's world in 1993. And, you know, I did the workout dating back to like 1980, but you know, I never really told anyone about it till I told Ambie, and he just thought it was the greatest thing. I think he it said, works. He said, you gotta be, it gotta be named after you. Cause it's like, you know, an astronomer finding a star and they get the star named after him. And he said, this workout will be named after you. And he kept saying my unusual name will stick. And, I said, okay, I don't know. Yeah, so we don't know. <laughs> you know. But well, it took off, and I hear about them every day of my life. Do you? <laughs> every day. Do you still do them? <laughs> oh, my God. I haven't gotten a serious track workout in years. I, I don't go anywhere near the track. I would like to if I physically could, but I, I don't. My, yeah, I have so much problem with my joints. It's really not a smart thing for me to do. I'm happy to, you know, I love running on the trails and staying on soft surface and it helps me out a bit. I'm happy just to do three or four miles. That makes my day. That's awesome. I mean, I think, you know, and, but that was a, I mean, all of everything that you've done has been such a big contribution to the world of running from building the races and partnerships at, with runner's world to creating this concept. It's not based on science. And I always told people that because people just say, Hey, these people, they're, they, there's a threat out there and they're bashing Yasso 800. You got to get on it. I'm like, no, I don't. They said, I don't, I never said, said to anyone in the world that they work. I, I knew they worked for me. I never told anyone to do them or that they work for everybody. I never uttered those words in my life. So, you know, I, I respect people's opinions. If it doesn't work for them, that's fine by me. But it is 
but I will say this, it is fun having a workout named after you because I hear about it all the time. It's pretty fun. Yeah, well, it's a, it's also a really fun workout. I have to say it's one of my favorite, that and mile repeats, just because it really, yeah, it gives you a good sense of where you're at. And yeah. you know what? You yeah. could be sick on that day and then maybe that's not where you're at. But like in general, it really does give you a good temperature of like what's going to happen. It's a good yeah, predictor. I'm like you, Marnie. Actually, five times a mile. I always said 10 times 800 was my favorite workout to accomplish. And it just felt good. But actually, the my favorite workout to feel felt like I was feeling good and ready to race was five times a mile. It is. How come? Yeah. I don't know. I just, when I did five times a mile, I just knew, okay, you're ready to do this race. Like, and that's, that's what you need going into a race. I, I, you know, I meet so many runners that go into the race thinking, oh, I should have done two more track workouts. I need to do one more long run. I'm like, no, that's not what you want to tell yourself at the starting line. Yeah. You want to, <laughs> you want to, you want to go in saying, I nailed that workout a couple of weeks ago. I am ready for this race. I got in that, my long runs. I'm ready to go. That's when you run a good race. Yeah, that is very true. Well, you have made so many contributions to the sport of running. You are in the Running USA Hall of Fame in the fourth oh, class yeah, in 2007. USA. I mean, I just want to say that because, I mean, that's that's huge. And also it's it's a testament to the sport of running to have this kind of Hall of Fame for people who aren't necessarily runners, but more for their contribution to the industry. Yeah, I always tell people that my tagline has always been never limit where running could take you. And I don't mean in just running itself, like where the sport can take you. And I use that as an example. Like, I also got uh, 2018, I got inducted into the RCA, which they call the Long Distance Running Hall of Fame. And uh, that was a pretty cool induction. And, you know, I said, like, how did I get inducted to two Hall of Fames? Like, how could this be possible? I just went out to run a mile to get to get fit and stuff happens. So I always tell people, you know, I, I did not get inducted in these Hall of Fames because I was fast. I got inducted in these Hall of Fames because of what I've done, my contribution to the sport. And, you know, I've done my fair share of races, but it was more my contribution than running so there's other ways to uh to, to take advantage of this sport not in a way to enhance your life and to you know just uh, those hall of fame things are pretty cool to experience yeah so, i mean i think day. it's it's amazing congratulations yeah so the running usa was i think 2007 is that yeah. right mm -hmm. yeah and then running us or the roadrunners club of america was i remember that was 2018 that was not that long ago you also have two books my Life on the Run and Race Everything. My Life on the Run is my, yeah, Race Everything was uh, my last work assignment at Runner's World. Uh, I worked with Aaron Stroud, who's a great writer and a, and a really talented editor. And uh, she helped me with Race Everything. And that was my last work assignment at Runner's World. Because they said, dude, you literally raced everything. You've <laughs> done every distance, every race, wherever we sent you, you did it. Uh, we got to figure out how to put it in a book and so i worked with aaron on race everything and then my memoir is called my life on the run which really is my life story and there's also training plans in there and things like that yeah my life on the run came out in 2008 and then race everything came out in 2017 listeners can go to your website and download the book as somebody who is deeply rooted in sports and running and cycling and triathlon. What are some of your go-to mantras, especially now in a time where, you know, people's races have been canceled, they're yeah. terrified. Oh, I know. People are really freaking out. I mean, even I who have been, I'm pretty positive and optimistic. I even, when I go out on a run, feel anxiety. And yeah. I, I can't, oh, yeah. it's like debilitating. It's really frustrating. So what do you like, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, I got so many people reaching out to me asking what to do, you know, when, are, when, when is this going to stop? And I said, I, you know, I don't have the answers. I, nobody does. I yeah. don't know what's, what's going on. But I can tell you this, like, you know, I always say that sometimes we take, well, we all, we all do. We take things for granted. But, you know, when I traveled the world, I met so many 
people that were suppressed from sports, suppressed from everything. And, you know, we were pretty darn lucky. We were able to run free and, uh, you know, we got it pretty good. So, you know, if we got four months or five months of downtime, people are really going to go to a race and appreciate what a race director does, what a volunteer does, how, what an opportunity is to run free in the streets of whether it's Boston or New York or Chicago or Topeka, Kansas, doesn't matter where. But so I really think that's what's going to happen. People are really going to appreciate what happens because right now people are beating up race directors. You're not giving me my money back. You're not having the race kind of thing. And they, they don't understand how much a race already invest, invested into the organization of the race so it's it's tough times you know the sad thing is a lot of races are going to fold up because they're not going to be able to survive you know not having that income it's really going to hurt a lot of races yeah a lot of local races right yeah a lot of small local races are really gonna hit be hit hard and gonna just go away which is sad but i think the running community will come away from it with a little more respect for the organizational side of our sport and the leadership in our sport from events and running stores and things like that. I really think this will put things a little more in perspective. It's kind of like when we were talking earlier, when something's taken away from you and then you get it back, you kind of look at it a little bit differently and look at it in a bigger, you know, image, like not just the run itself, what it takes to put on this run, how hard people work on this run. Uh, you know, I always, I always ask people that really complain about a race. I always ask them, okay i'm just curious how many races you've done and they say oh you know like 500 or whatever and i always say like how many have you volunteered at and i get the answer none a lot and i'm like okay before you do anything go volunteer for a race and then come back and talk to me because then you really see the other side of what goes on and uh, it's not as easy as it looks and uh and there's people that work very hard that you are have this opportunity to go out and set your personal best and, you know, live your dream. So be thankful to those people. Yeah. I mean, I feel horrible when I see people like being rude on social media to these race directors or companies because, you know, as much as much work as we as runners or athletes, triathletes, we put into training is as much work as people put into their jobs, organizing these events and races. And yeah. I think the respect works both ways. And I think it's horrible, but they're doing what they have to do to protect people and follow the law. Yeah, yeah. It's not like one race just decided to cancel. It's like yeah, unanimously yeah. across These the world. races are just... <laughs> I feel bad. told what to do. Yeah. You really learn when you work with... When you volunteer and, and really get involved in a race, how much... You know, the race doesn't have all the say that people think they have. On the athlete side of things, do you have advice? You're an athlete and you, you have persevered many things, including Lyme disease, yeah. and yet you get yourself back out there. I've always done this sport because I enjoy it. And I think that's what I find out, that some people actually don't like running. They like the, the glory of it if they're good at it. They like certain things about it, but they really don't like the sport. And that's what... It amazes me because I, you know, they said, well, I've been training for three months and I'm like, well, I've been running for 43 years and I complain to keep running for another whatever, 20, 25 years. I mean, I do it because I love it. So just because I can't do this race doesn't mean like I shouldn't have done those last four months of training because I, I mean, I always love the sport. I, I, and that's when I find, you know, when I really talk to people, some people don't like it. They just, they do it because they're good at it. Or do it because, you know, makes them feel good, I, you know. But I always, I always said, like, but I feel for people that really trained hard and peaked and really thought this was the race. And, you know, I get it. It's not, not a fun thing. But but we got, you know, this this pandemic is something really big and it's global. And we have to play our role to help. You know, it's not, this, this is running is a little way, way, way on the back burner in the, in the big picture. And we're lucky we're still getting, you know, as far as I know, you can still go out on the road. So. Right. I mean, in Italy, they can't go outside. So, right. I mean, we're yeah. lucky we still can go outside. Yeah. So even just, you know, if no racers are going on, we still got to be happy that we have that freedom to go out and run. Hopefully, hopefully we don't have a, you know, a 24-hour curfew that we can't. But, 
you know, we'll see what happens down the road. But we got to play our role and, and help things and not do, you know, I heard so many people say, oh, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon on the day it was supposed to be anyway. I'm going to run the course. And it's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. The community stopped this. We cannot go into that community and say, hey, we're running anyway. We don't care what you, you know, we got to play, we got to play our role and understand why they don't want this to happen and not do it. Yeah. It's, it's so serious. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they could get mad and not have a race, which would really ruin it for a lot of people. So I just, you know, respect what's going on and carry on and things will things will go back to normal someday. Yeah, I think it's an uh, the opportunity to maybe do some strength training, work on your yeah. core, you know, be inside. If you can still, if you can still run, I think people should get outside it just i don't think they should be running on top of each other like i think you should right. respect people's space like in a triathlon you know yep. where you have like six feet no drafting i think there should be like yeah. a no drafting policy <laughs> like that, in yeah. new york city because <laughs> i don't think runners know about the no drafting policy but <laughs> yeah that's very funny i like that I yeah like that i think helps. i should get some t-shirts to say no drafting <laughs> on the back and like marnie yeah. on the move on the front <laughs> and hand I them like out <laughs> <laughs> this was so awesome, Bart. Thank you so oh, much. I really Mark. like mad respect to you and everything that you've done and contributed to the world of running. Oh, thank you. Keep at it. That's the key. And keep it fun because that way, you know, if we do have some downtime where we miss it, when we get back at it, we're going to love it even more, which is the key. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Marnie. Have a wonderful thank you day. So much. Stay healthy. Yes, you too. All, All right. right. Thanks, thank Bart. You so much. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. <laughs>